Welcome to Rebuilding. This podcast is designed to help the church rebuild its walls one person at a time. For more information, check us out at www.piercepoint.org. Good morning, good morning, good morning. If you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn with me to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. We are going to wrap up our series called Adorn today by, um, in some ways, recapping on everything that we've learned. Uh, and then in, um, in other ways, we're going to talk about a couple of new things. I've, I've hinted about this for the past couple of weeks that I'm going to share with you a, a kind of a perspective on slavery, a perspective on race relations and things like that as we address things in the Bible. Um, as I've worked through this message this week, as I've, as I've you know, prayed through and studied and done all that stuff, uh, there is no way for me to work it into the message in such a nice, neat, packaged way. So I'm just going to start with a mini-sermon that talks about that, and then I'm going to conclude on this. Uh, up to this point, we talked about adorning the gospel, and that is that each and every one of us as Christians are called to, um, to frame in, to draw attention to, to adorn the masterpiece, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. God's gospel, Jesus Christ come to save men and instruct us to live godly, sensible, righteous lives in the present age. That gospel is the most glorious masterpiece the world has ever known. Okay, it's, it's the most beautiful message ever. There's no other faith, there's no other religion, there's nothing else that offers uh, this, this kind of grace that Adam and the team sang about this morning. This, this grace and this mercy that says you didn't deserve it, you couldn't earn it, but he's loving you, he's running after you, he cares for you. And so we see this gospel and, and our lives are intended to be the frame around that masterpiece. So I gave you the image of the, the Mona Lisa and that there's a frame around the Mona Lisa in the gallery and nobody really ne- notices or pays attention to the frame. Uh, but, but that frame says, distinguish the Mona Lisa from the wall, distinguish the Mona Lisa from every other piece of art in the world. And so that's what we do. Our godliness distinguishes the gospel of Jesus Christ from every other faith, from every other religion, from every other nonsense thing that comes our way in the world. And that is, and that is framed in or that is accentuated by our godly living. Anybody who tells you, any preacher who tells you that you're saved by this unconditional love that has no expectation of you is selling something. They're selling something. God has called us to righteousness. It is always in view of mercy, but he has called us to something big. He's called us to something life-giving, amen? And so over this time, we've talked about how each and every one of us in different groups are intended to adorn the gospel. We talked about how older men are to adorn the gospel. We talked about older women, how they're to adorn the gospel. We talked about their exemplary lives for younger women to show them how that they're to adorn the gospel. Last week, we talked about young men adorning the gospel. And then there's this one passage. So here's, here's just kind of the mini segment in the, in the message about about slavery, about race relations, about those kind of things that comes. Uh, Verse 9 of Titus chapter 2 reads this way. It says, Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, 
to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in every respect. Another way of reading that is that they too will adorn because the next verse talks about how we're all called to do this in the present age. But the, the point is, is that it, right here we have this instruction to bond slaves. Now I could, I could do what many modern pastors do and there is a slight bit of validity to their statement. Okay, there, There's a measure of it. Um, but I could say the word is bond slaves. Yes, the word can be defined as actual slaves, uh, but it is bond slaves, and that's more akin to an employer-employee relationship, so let's just change the words, and we'll just talk about employment. But I think everybody in the room would go, eh, it sounds like you're trying to weasel your way out of this one. And that, I believe, is what many try to do. I, I, don't, I don't believe every, every pastor has an agenda to try to not deal with these issues. I just think many pastors desire to talk to their congregation about things that would help them, right? So you guys work for a living, so why not talk about how you should relate to your employer, employee? But the issue here is that the word is slave, and there is a connotation in this that refers to ownership. And that's something that we have to take a deep breath and accept in the Bible. We have to look at it, and we have to accept this. But there are a couple of things that I want to I share with you about the scripture, about the context, about the time, that will set your mind at ease when it comes to this whole idea. The first thing is we're not going to take the cheap way out and say this is just employer-employee. We're going to deal with the word bond-slave. We're going to deal with the word slavery. The first thing that I want to draw your attention to is that this is exactly what the Apostle Paul views himself to be in God's kingdom. Every letter Paul writes, he says, I, Paul, a bond-slave, a slave, a servant, owned by a master who is the king of kings, I, Paul, a bond-slave of Christ, say to you. Okay, so right off the bat, this idea is not, uh, is not weird, okay? This, this is something that Paul embraces. The Bible doesn't throw it away. The Bible has a different meaning for it completely than what we deal with in our world today. So the very first thing is that we're not going to take the easy way out. The second thing, you cannot view the term slavery, bond slavery, through the lens of antebellum slavery or through the Civil War. Anybody who does so, anybody who conflates those two things is not being honest with history. They're not taking this historical study seriously. And here's some, some facts about this. One is, a, one is a percentage fact and the other one is a his, historian of the, that era, of that time, and what he communicates about the economy and the life there. Near 30 to 40% of the entire Roman Empire... 30 to 40%, if you want this for any kind of arguments that you get into or discussions you get into with your friends, 30 to 40% of the entire Roman Empire during the writing of Titus, Philemon, uh, Ephesians, and these different pastoral epistles or different epistles of prison letters of Paul, 30 to 40% of the entire Roman Empire were slaves. Think about that for just a second. 30 to 40% were slaves. 
There is no way in our logical minds that this meant 30 to 40% of people who had no identity, they were not respected as human beings, that they were thought of as less than anybody else. It was a way of life in the culture. This is how these people had any kind of food, housing, or care for their family. See, here's, here's the problem. I just told you, you can't think antebellum slavery, right? Before the war is what that means in the Latin. But antebellum slavery, before the Civil War, you can't compare these kinds of things because they weren't. How many of you watch or have watched Downton Abbey? The rest of you should. Okay, so moving on, right? Okay, Lord of the Rings, Downton Abbey. Until then... Okay, so when you, when you think about slavery in the Bible, when you talk about being a servant in the Bible, you need to think Downton Abbey, not Uncle Tom's Cabin. You need to think Downton Abbey. You don't need to be thinking Civil War era, American slavery, English slavery, French slavery. You can't, this is not the same thing. And it's completely dishonest to conflate them and then get mad at the Bible or get mad at God about these things. It's completely different. 30 to 40% of the entire Roman Empire lived in what was called slavery of the time. They were servants. They had housing. They had food. They had a life. They had their own world to, to live in. And they worked right beside their masters. Give you some context biblically of, of how, like, if the Bible thought this was moral slavery, uh, morally repugnant slavery like we found in the Americas, you can imagine that the Bible would have said, or Jesus would have said, knock it off. But it, but it doesn't say that. The Bible took care of that all the way back to in, in Exodus. The Bible took care of slave traders. The Bible took care of people who viewed men and women as less than and sold them to other people. You know what the Bible says in Exodus 21? It says people who do such things should die. There you go. Okay, so awesome. When you talk about American slavery and this nonsense of antebellum slavery, it is morally reprehensible. Problem. Throw it away, okay? But what the Bible is communicating were a people that got, they earned their living. They had their life because of this. Here's what historian William Westerman said. He said that the institution of slavery was a fact of Mediterranean economic life so completely accepted as a part of the labor structure of the time that you cannot correctly speak of it as the, quote, slave problem in antiquity. It wasn't viewed as a problem. This is why in the New Testament you don't have writers saying slavery is awful and you should throw it away. It was a different term. It was a different idea than what we know. Okay, so the first thing, we just got to deal with the fact that it does use the word slavery. There's a, a nuanced understanding of it. There was a lifestyle. There is, uh, there is no conflation between that and antebellum slavery or civil war slavery. 30 to 40% of the entire Roman Empire, Roman citizens, <laughs> were slaves at the time. It can't mean what we think it means today, okay? And then the last piece that I, that I want you to make sure that you understand, and this is where the race component comes in, slavery in the Bible had no racial component whatsoever. It had no racial component whatsoever. The Bible does not talk about people being less than. How, do you guys know? How many races are there in all of mankind? How many races there are? One, human race. We all came from Adam and Eve. 
It doesn't matter what color you are. It doesn't matter where you came from. You are one in in God. He created us from a common ancestor, Adam and Eve. There's one race. There is no room. (laughs) There's no room in all of this stuff for any kind of bigotry and hatred towards another person. The Apostle Paul says to Titus, he says in verse 3 of chapter 3 of Titus 3, he says, For we also were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hating one another. That's who we were. But verse 2 says who, were, who we ought to be, which is a people who are gentle, peaceable, showing every consideration for all men. All men. That includes women. No, no, no daggers there, okay? And men, grow up, right? That's, that's your reality, okay? So it's really important that we kind of get that inside of our head. If somebody comes to you and says, I've got a problem with God, I've got a problem with the Bible because Jesus doesn't, Paul doesn't throw away slavery. Your first mindset should be, you clearly don't understand the terms well. Can we have a conversation? Okay, there's a lot of what gets into this debate, into this this heated arguments about this and what the Bible says and what the Bible doesn't say and all this stuff. It it is often based on people's assumptions. And guess where that gets us? (laughs) Okay, so so it's really it's not good. You guys all know the old adages and sayings, so I'll just leave it all at that. Okay, Titus chapter two, Titus chapter two. Here's what we've read so far. This is powerful. As for you, Paul speaking to Titus, a young man who is set aside for the gospel of Jesus. As for you, Titus, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith and love and perseverance. So how do older men adorn the gospel? We just saw it right? They are to be a people who are sensible, dignified, temperate. We're going to come back to that in a little bit. Sound in faith and love and perseverance. Powerful realities, okay? Older women, likewise, are to be, this is how you adorn the gospel, reverent in your behavior, not malicious gossips or any other kind of gossip, so knock that off, right? Nor enslaved to much wine. Why did we need to understand what being drunk meant or what it would create because we're all called to a mutual Greek word. What's that word? Anybody remember it? Come on. Starts with an H. I have failed as a pastor. Okay. Hupatasso. Say it again. Hupatasso. Everybody one more time. Hupatasso. That's awesome, right? We are all called to a mutual submission. And the problem with drinking, the problem with drunkenness and alcohol, and listen, I will go farther. I will say that you you can challenge me on this. You can test me on this. The Bible says, do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's talking about not being out of sorts so that you can be completely controlled by the king of kings. I believe that that goes far beyond just wine, okay? So all you men out there, right? It says don't get drunk on wine. It doesn't give credence for beer. Knock it off, right? So you're not, you're, no, you're not allowed to do this. But here's where I take it further. Here's where I want to push further. As a matter of fact, Proverbs says that beer is a brawler, just so you know. You ever met somebody who's had too much beer and they want to pick a fight with everybody? You know why the Bible says what it says, okay? Okay, so beer is a brawler. But I'm telling you that with medication, 
the same thing can happen. The same thing can happen with narcotics. The same thing can happen with drugs. The same thing can happen with even prescription medications. You're out of sorts and unable to be controlled by the Spirit of God. I am not saying all medicine is bad. Neither would I say wine is bad. Neither would I say having a drink is bad. What I am saying is that there is a problem when you go too far. And you guys have to pray through that. And you guys have to know what that actually is. So uh, be uh, not given to much wine. Why? Because it hinders our submissive nature to one another. That's an important thing. So he goes on uh, and says, teaching what is good. Older women are to teach what is good through an exemplary life. And here's, what they're, here's who they're to teach and what they're to teach. So that you may encourage the young women, that's who they teach, here's what they teach, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, subject to their own husbands, and there's a beautiful reward for it, and that is so that the word of God will not be dishonored, or as King James says, will not be blasphemed, okay? So you guys know that many people criticize the word of God today. Our first line of defense in, in, in standing our ground and upholding the word of God uh, uh, against the reproach of the world is to live what it says. Do what God says. He says that when we do that, the word of God will not be maligned. Maybe somebody throws a stone at it, but it doesn't hurt anything, right? So this is really important. Likewise, urge young men. Now, I stressed this last week. This is really powerful. This is how young men are to adorn the gospel. Be sensible. That's it. If I was to ask you for... (laughs) Enough said, really. If I was to ask you for one word that describes young men of today's generation, today's culture, it would not be sensible. Right? You wouldn't use sensible. It wouldn't be in the top 100. Okay? enslaved to video games, maybe, but not. And listen, the laughter stopped because some of you just hate me for taking that on. <laughs> Tough nookies, right? The, the reality is we, we, we would not identify young men as this, but they are, Christian young men are to be this. Listen, maybe it's just me, father of four girls, but man, I want to see a revival of sensible young men, okay? So just like the churches I grew up in, we're going to schedule a revival on a Thursday night because you can schedule revival. Did you know that? Anyway, so we're going to schedule revival and we're going to pray for sensible young men. Just so you know, I have no faith for it. But anyway, so, okay. So I shouldn't expect to receive what I'm asking for then. Okay, so... So you're supposed to urge young men, this is parakaleo, the same word used for the Holy Spirit in the scripture, urge young men to be sensible. But then Titus, who is a young man himself, lives an exemplary life of sensibility. What is that exemplary life? Here's what Christian young men, here's what I'm looking for. Parents, in case one of your boys wants to marry my daughters, here's what I'm looking for. I don't care what they're looking for. Here's what I'm looking for. In all things, show yourself an example of good deeds. Sensible young men are an example of good deeds. Right? Dave, I'm looking at you. Okay. Sensible, <laughs> sensible young men are an example of good deeds. Sensible young men have purity in their doctrine. These are Christian young men. Do not think for one second, church, 
that it is the responsibility of the professional Christian alone to have purity in their doctrine. Every one of us is called to have purity in our doctrine. We're all supposed to know what we know and believe what we believe. We're all supposed to be able to share what it is that we believe. So it's important that we get this, right? Purity in our doctrine. Uh, and then sound in speech. <laughs> That's funny. Okay, so young men, if you work on anything, watch your face, right? Watch your mouth. Sound in speech. Why is that so important? The Bible says James, the brother of Jesus, says that the tongue is an unbelievable force. How many of you know that? By living life, right? Right? It has in it the power of life and death, right? This, this is big, right? Young men should know how to control it. I, I was discipling one guy, and he's really an awesome guy, and he's whatever. Okay, I, I won't go there. But he, when, when it came to his communication, okay, when it came to his communication, I had two rules for him at all times. He was a hymn hauler. You know those people? Eh, well, um, well, kind of, uh, well, sort of, maybe, uh, right? He's a hymn hauler. I said, stop. I, I make people mad a lot. Shut up, okay? Shut up. Okay, so here's what I want you to do. I want you to know what you're going to say before you say it. Church, if we practice that, it would change the world, okay? <laughs> right? Know what you're going to say before you say it. And then I gave him one extra rule. After you know what you're going to say before you say it, edit what you're going to say before you say it, right? Because it's still bad, okay? So, so let's do this. Sound and speech are a people who know what they're going to say before they say it. There are people who edit what they're going to say before they say it. And they are careful with the words that they use. Why? Because the tongue has in it the power of life and death. This is a vital thing. Okay, so sound and speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. I know this from firsthand experience. I'm not saying because I am this guy. I wish to be this guy. But I know this from firsthand experience. When somebody is really sound in their speech and good with their rhetoric, you really don't feel like arguing with them because you know you'll get your booty handed to you right? They're very good at how they use their words. If we're sound in speech, opponents are put to shame. They, they get it, right? They're like, oh, I got to come with a better argument. I can't just lob stones at this guy. Most Christians today, this is a fact, church, most Christians today uh, take the abuses of the world and they look poor, they look, they look bad, because they can't defend. They can't protect against the abuses of the world. When the world sets up an argument against the church, many in the church today, I would argue most in the church today, don't even know how to respond. This is a problem. Sound in speech. You've got to know how to do this so that your opponent will be put to shame. It's not so you can bring shame upon people, but they will know that they have been bested. Then verse 9, bond slaves, slaves, be subject to your own masters in everything. Be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering. That word simply means stealing little by little over time. You know what you do with copy paper from work, right? So anyway, so not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the gospel of God or the doctrine of God, our Savior, in every respect. Now, this is where we've gone with this series, and this is where it dumps us out. And so we're going we're gonna to blend from verse 11 into chapter 3, and I want to talk to you all about 
being a fool or being wise. Because those who adorn the gospel, write it down, those who adorn the gospel are the wise people of the scripture. And those who do not adorn the gospel, those who do not live righteously and and, uh, sensibly and godly in the present age for the glory of the masterpiece, that's actually what the Bible says is a fool. So here's what verse 11 says. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Who gets saved? Who is salvation offered to? All men, not some, all men. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. What does the gospel continue in? Instruction. It brings salvation to all men. Verse 12, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live, please say this with me, church, sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Now, now, you do that now. Okay, you live godly, you live righteously, you live sensibly in the present age. Verse 13, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed. Camp out there for just a second. Jesus came to redeem us from every lawless deed. This word is not that Jesus came to wash away your past sins, to redeem you from your lawless deeds, but now you get to go and live any way you want. Do you realize how illogical that is? That we should sin that grace might abound? I can't tell you how many, and this is no exaggeration, I can't tell you how many pastors I talk to that say we cannot do what the Bible says, even regenerate people. So much so that I've had discussions with pastors who, who tell us or tell me that the qualifications of different ministries in different areas are not things that can be attained to. Nonsense. God does not tell us, hey, I saved you, but good luck because you're just not going to get there. You're not going to be better. You're not going to do these things. It would be a direct contradiction from everything else we've read. It would be a direct contradiction from the words that say, live, uh, live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. If the story of Paul that said, the things I want to do, I can't do, and the things I don't want to do, I keep on doing, do you realize that effectively says that Paul, Paul is saying, I can never do anything right. If that was true of the new man, then Paul himself is a moron for writing to Titus and saying, live that way in this present age. That makes no sense. And Paul's not going to contradict himself. He's far too smart for this, right? So what is said is that we are to live this sensible, righteous, godly life in the present age, looking forward to the blessed hope of the future, okay? Jesus returning, life is awesome. That's what we're looking for. Uh, Waiting for the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself to redeem us from every lawless deed now. And look at what comes next to prove it yet more. And to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. You know who you are to be as a person who adorns the gospel? A person zealous for good deeds. You ever met somebody that has a lot of zeal? You ever met somebody like that? It's like, it's kind of infectious. You kind of get riled up with them, whatever. This is how you're to be with your good deeds. You should so want to do good things and to do the things good defined by God. You should so want to do good deeds that it just consumes your life. You, You should not be the person that says, all do I have to. 
You should be the person that says, yes, when do I get to? Do you, do you get the difference in that? Okay, so it's infectious if you'll live this way. So uh, for good deeds, purify for himself a people of his own possession, zealous for good deeds. These things, he's back to talking to Titus. He says, these things speak and exhort uh, and reprove, that is to speak, teach, and correct with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Let no one disregard you. Then we go to chapter 3. And by the way, those chapters weren't there in the original writing. So it, the thought just continued and says, remind them. This convicted me this week. This convicted me this week. I just want to kind of share it with you. Paul says to Titus, I want you to remind them. What is that implying? It implies they forget. That's powerful. What else does reminder imply? That they already know. Guys, if, if that's been you on the receiving end of me, and I'm, I've treated you as though you don't already know. It's not a reminder. It's a beat it into your head. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. The objective of the pastor, young man or old man, the objective of the shepherd is to, if in fact you are a seasoned Christian, if, you, if in fact you have walked with Jesus, it, the, the objective of the pastor is to come to you and remind you. And I want to show you how he reminds them. And then I'm, I'm going to show you that it's simply a reminder to you as well. Okay? Now, if you're new to the faith, if you, if you just came to Jesus, this may not be a reminder to you. If you were in a church that you were never taught to live righteously and holy and godly in the present age, if you were taught that you're just kind of saved by grace and you're crossing your fingers and wait until Jesus returns, then this isn't a reminder to you. It's all new, okay? But for many of you, I have a sneaking suspicion, many of you, this is a reminder. So here's, he says, remind them. And so I want to remind you of this. Be subject to rulers. How many um, rebellions have been started in this room? Show of hands. Anybody an anarchist? Anybody, right? See, I'm reminding you because you already do this naturally. We live in a great country, don't we? The best country the world has ever known, my opinion. Don't really care for yours right now, but, right? It's, it's the greatest country that the world has ever known. And, and we are subject to those rulers. Do we always agree with those rulers? No, that wasn't the right answer. Heck no, nah. that's the right answer, right? Right, heck no. Nah. No, so we don't always agree, but we are subject to our rulers. Why? Because that's the only way law and order is maintained. That's the only way civility is maintained, okay? So it's a reminder. And you guys are going, duh, Nathan, I do this all the time. Good, that's why it's a reminder. Uh, be subject to rulers, to authorities, are you subject to the local magistrates, to the police officer? When they pull you over, when they, the lights go on, do you pull over immediately? Or do you drive like three quarters of a mile, two miles, go, he can't be talking to me, right? <laughs> yeah, he is, right? Pull over, right? We obey. We're like, okay, that's fine. Hands attended to, whatever you need, right? Get out of the car, fine. That, if that's what you need from me, if that's what you call me to, whatever, right? This is a reminder because Christian people are to be this, right? Subject to rulers, to authorities. I love how these two go together. To be obedient, to be ready for every good deed. You know how easy it is to be ready for good deeds when you're living a life of obedience? But you know how unwilling you are? Maybe it's because of shame and guilt 
uh, to do a good deed when you feel like, when you know you've been living in disobedience? You know, you know what I'm talking about? Like if, if you were a kid in your house and you were doing something mom told you not to do or dad told you not to do, and then your mom's like, hey, will you go, will you go do this for me? You feel guilty. The whole t- you're going, I should probably tell her first. I should probably tell her first I broke everything, right? I should, I should probably warn, you're, you're not as readily willing to go and do good deeds. But when you're doing what is right and somebody says, hey, can you do this? You're like, I'm in, what do you need? You know that? That's, at least that's the way it can, communicates in my life. So, so you're ready for every good deed when you're obedient. Verse two, to malign no one. This is just a reminder. Not only is gossip bad, but so is malicious gossip, right? Don't malign anyone. Maybe you've never taken a full page ad out in the newspaper for the person you don't like this week or the person on Facebook that disliked or unliked you or unfriended you or whatever, right? But in your conversations with your friends, if you have ever said, man, I, I love Dave McCarthy. He, like, that dude is a really cool guy. I'm not saying you'd say Dave McCarthy, but I'm using it, right? I love Dave McCarthy. Man, he's the real deal. Like, I, I believe that he's a genuine Christian, but all y'all know what I'm talking about, right? And I'm not talking about Dave right now. I'm talking about you, right? You talk about a person and then there's a but. Be careful because what comes next is often maligning. And it's often maligning done with this pseudo-nonsense caring attitude that you think you have, right? Dave's a great guy, but man, he is, but man, he is. And Dave's agreeing with me right now, but that's for another story altogether, right? So just be careful on the malicious nature of your speech. Malign no one. Be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. I think you guys get those by natural. You know, naturally, they are reminders to you. But look at what it says next. It says, for we also once were <coughs> foolish. You know what you were before you lived this way? The Bible says you were fools. Turn to somebody next to you and say, I once was a fool. Right. Wives, don't turn back to your husbands and say, you still are. Okay. All right. Okay, I once, I once was a fool. We once were a fool. The dictionary defines fool as a person who acts unwisely, imprudently, or silly. We've all used the phrase act a fool, right? So, so this is the dictionary's definition. The Bible's de- definition of a fool is really harsh, right? Biblical definition of a fool, of a fool in this day. Insolent, stupid, idiot, futile, godless. I love those. <laughs> those are fantastic. Listen, Dave McCarthy is a great guy, but. <laughs> right. Idiot. No, anyway. Okay, so, so moving back, right? Moving back. So we got a dictionary definition of fool. We've got the biblical definition of fool. But let's go for a more nuanced understanding of fool. Proverbs 107, 17 says a fool is a rebellious person. That's what a fool is. Think about this when it comes to adorning the gospel. God says you adorn the gospel his way. What we're called to adorn the gospel is inspired. How we're to do it is equally inspired. And so God says, I want you to do this, this, and this, and this. Older women, older men, all these different people. Here's how you adorn my gospel. For you to say no is for you to live in rebellion, correct? And for you to be a rebel is for you to be a fool. So be careful with it, right? 
A rebellious person is a fool. Proverbs 1.7. A fool despises wisdom and instruction. The New Testament would use the word doctrine. I hear too many Christians are like, oh, you and your doctrine. It's all doctrine. What about relationship? You can't have a relationship without proper teaching of the one you have a relationship with right? You, you can't know God unless you have proper doctrine. Otherwise, you're worshiping something else, okay? So it's despising wisdom, despising instruction or doctrine. Proverbs 10, 8 and 10, those people who babble on and on speaking without thinking. Know what you're going to say before you say it. And edit what you're going to say as well so that you're not a biblical fool. Proverbs 10, 21, those who lack understanding and are therefore unhelpful. But this is the best way to understand this. It says in 10, 21, that the righteous not only eat themselves, but they are wise enough that they feed others while a fool is hard pressed to fill his own belly. Think about this. Now, put that in a spiritual context, and you understand, if you can't even fill your own belly with the Word of God, with those things, be careful. You're either an infant Christian who needs to grow, or sadly, you're revealing you're still a fool in an area of your life. This is challenging. Proverbs 12, 15, a fool is always right in his own eyes and refuses to seek biblical counsel. How many of you know somebody like that? No wives' hands right now, okay? How many of you know somebody like that? I know somebody like that, right? That was, that was a joke. But anyway, I, I know many people like that. And guess what? I've been that guy. I've been that guy many times in my life. It's not acceptable. It's not something you should relate to and say, well, if Nate struggles with it, then I guess it's okay. No. No, it's not. Be, we don't need to be fools together, <laughs> right? It will not go well. I, just trust me on that. Proverbs 12, 15. Proverbs 12, 16, the very next verse, says that a fool can't keep his temper and that a fool mocks sin. What are older men supposed to be? Temperate, right? If an older man is not temperate, if they're not, if they're not able to control their temper, they're, they're acting a fool. They're becoming foolish. This is powerful. My mom's looking at my dad really funny right now. So anyway, so they mock sin. Proverbs 16, 22, a fool learns things the hard way. Turn with me there. This is, we're, we're about to wrap up. But Proverbs chapter 16, verse 22, this is such a powerful verse. And understanding it the right way is important. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 22, it says this, understanding is a fountain of life to one who has it. Amen. Understanding is a fountain of life to one who has it. But how we read this next verse is so important. But the discipline of fools is folly. You know what that means? It means the correction of a fool is when they screw it all up. Folly is their teacher. How many of you don't like folly as a teacher? Like when you just jack something up really bad, like it's ba you broke it, okay? And you're like, man, I wish I wouldn't have done that. Isn't it a better teacher when somebody says, hey, if you do it that way, you're going to break it? And that doesn't mean you're going to listen, <laughs> right? But that's a better teacher. A fool's, a fool, why did you pat Tina? <laughs> okay, you knock it off. Okay, so, so anyway, so guys, I got to take a break and do some marriage counseling really quick, okay? So, this is never acceptable at that time, Barney. Okay, so... The idea, though, is that, is that folly 
is the discipline. It's the correction. It's the teacher of a fool. I don't want to be that guy. I want to learn the right way. Guess what that means? That means you got to listen when somebody teaches you. That means you got to listen when the teacher is teaching you. you got to listen, not just because they may have wisdom or they may have insight into something, but if it is God's word they're proclaiming, you need to listen because it's God. His word is right. Amen? This is, this is such huge stuff, okay? So out of the 99 times the word fool is used in the Old Testament, 83 of those times appear in Proverbs and Psalms. Solomon and David were dealing with idiots. It's unbelievable, unbelievable. Okay, back to Titus chapter 3 so we can wrap this up. Titus chapter 3, verse 3 through 8. Here is what a righteous man looks like. Here's what one who leaves that foolishness behind, just a reminder for you, leaves foolishness behind and walks in righteousness looks like. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. Gosh, that's an exhausting verse right there. Goes on. Verse 4. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, but God, but His mercy, right? He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done, Now understand what we're talking about here. Salvation is not based on your deeds. Salvation does bring you to a place of deeds, okay? The gospel as, uh, I can't even remember his name uh, now, but uh, Dallas Willard, as Dallas Willard says, the gospel is not opposed to effort. The gospel is opposed to earning. You do not earn anything. In view of mercy though, Effort galore. You give yourself to God. You do what he says. And I'll I'll prove it to you in the rest of these verses. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, praise God, by the washing of regeneration. First thing, you're regenerated. That's an important thing. But look at what happens next. And renewing by the Holy Spirit. You know what the word renew implies? You were once new. You were the bright, shiny model and you got old, okay? And God, so, sorry, I'm not, that was not an age comment. But anyway, so you got old. God wants to renew you. How does he renew us? Through the Holy Spirit, verse six, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Guess how you're regenerated and guess how you're renewed? By the outpouring of the Spirit that comes when you confess Jesus as Lord. It changes your everything in life. So through Jesus Christ, our Savior, verse seven, so that being justified by his grace, what are we justified by church? Grace. Grace. Justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And here it is, such a beautiful verse. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be Careful to engage in good deeds. It's effort. You have not earned it. God paid for it. But you are called to adorn the gospel with every aspect of your life. You should be eager for good deeds. You should be zealous for good deeds. It is the pastor teacher's job to teach you that last piece of verse 8. That you would be careful to engage in good deeds. To be careful. Now, 
just to kind of set your minds at ease. Be careful to engage in good deeds is not to be understood. Be careful or you'll lose something. That wasn't the point. It's not in its context. Be careful is more like take care in doing a thing. Okay? You need to focus your heart and your mind on a regular basis in doing good stuff, in doing godly things, in doing righteous things, in doing the things that the King of Kings would expect from all of us. And guess what's so awesome about it? When you do that, we draw attention to the most beautiful picture the world has ever seen, the gospel of Jesus Christ. When you do that, when we're eager for this, we point to God. We point to his son. We point to those people. If we're never going to live righteous lives, we, wouldn't, we shouldn't be surprised when the world ridicules us for being hypocrites. We shouldn't. But if we are living godly lives, if we're living good lives, righteous lives in view of mercy, the world is going to take note, church. The world is going to see it, and the world is going to be absolutely and utterly amazed at Jesus, not at your frame, <laughs> right? At, at Jesus. Amen? Stand with me. God, you are faithful, you are good, and you have called us to faithfulness and goodness. It's quite a fantastic reality. You are faithful and you are good, and you've called us to be like you. Imagine that. Lord, we need help, we need reminders, we need, uh, we need the word of God spoken to us, we need the word of God taught to us. And sometimes, Lord, whether we want to admit it or not, sometimes we need corrected by the word of God and by the people who love us dearly. But God, in all things, speaking, teaching, or correcting, we, we are just wanting to be more like you or we are, we're being shaped to be more like you. And we gladly accept that. Help us to adorn your gospel. Help us to, to frame in the masterpiece through everything that we do in this life. We praise you. We thank you for everything that you do. In Jesus' great and wonderful name, amen. Thanks so much for listening to Rebuilding from Pierce Point Community Church. We hope that today's podcast will help you become a more connected part of Christ's body. Remember to check out our website at piercepoint.org for more information.